The media have changed a lot in recent years, not for the better, at least not in my opinion. The New York Times certainly isn't the newspaper it used to be. Ashley Rinsberg has written a book making the case that, even in its best days, the Times often failed to live up to its reputation as the newspaper of record, pursuing and publishing the truth. As the paper's founder put it, without fear or favor, regardless of party, sect, or interests involved. The title of Mr. Rinsberg's book, The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Distortions, and Fabrications Radically Alter History. Iris Stahl is a journalist and author, the media columnist of the Alga Miner, and editor of SmarterTimes.com. They talk about the Times in particular, and the state of journalism in general with me, Cliff May, on this special edition in association with FPD's Barish Center for Media Integrity. We're glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. All right, so as I mentioned, guys, I worked at the Times for the longest stretch of my full-time journalistic career. And I'm ashamed to admit, I didn't know most of what you've written, uh, Ashley, uh, I mean, the books written about the Times by Harris and Salisbury and Gay Talese, for example, certainly don't tell those stories. One tale I did know is that of Walter Durante, and it's relevant to the news right now. So, Ashley, welcome, of course. Ira, welcome. But start with Walter Durante, because I think that will give people an idea of the kinds of misreporting that 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 you're describing in this book. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cliff, and good to be with you, Ira, on the show. Um, Durante, we all kind of know the basics, or, or I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast would have at least heard the name and known he had something to do with covering up the Ukraine famine in the early 1930s, um, which was more or less a deliberate genocide perpetrated by Stalin, who was early in his reign. And um, Durante knew that there was a famine. He denied it in his reporting for the New York Times. He also actively denied the re reporting of other journalists who at the time were reporting there was indeed a famine. So he it wasn't just that he was denying it in his own reporting. He was actually calling into question other people's reporting. And this was pretty egregious. But it also doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, Cliff, you would know as well as anybody that journalists, what do they want most in life? Great scoops, right? Big stories. Why would an ambitious journalist... This guy was a transplant from the UK, was polyglot, um, trained at Cambridge. Why would he give up the story of a decade, the decade? I mean, he was early on chasing stories in World War One, trying to get the, he was putting himself in mortal danger to get these stories. And then suddenly he gets this gigantic opportunity and says, no, thanks. And the New York Times' response to this since then, including up until quite recently, was always that, oh, he was just this slovenly 
journalist. No, that is quite contrary to the case. He, he was not slovenly. He was diligent. He was incredibly intelligent. He was hardworking. He was a celebrated correspondent, probably the most celebrated correspondent in the world at that time. And so we people gloss over the question of why. Why would Durante do this? Why did he do it? And what I am saying and what my what I've reported and, and the research that I've done has shown is that it wasn't Durante. It was the New York Times' management. It was the New York Times looking to help smooth the way for U.S. official recognition of the still nascent Soviet government at the time. And the reason that they had an interest in this at all is because they were part of a consortium of big business in America that was desperately seeking access to a market that they had sort of been debarred from after the revolution. Getting back to that market, reestablishing trade ties would depend on having formal U.S. recognition and the ability to make new trade ties with with that new government. And you could not convince the American public that that could be something that an American president would be okay to do if that government had just killed up to 7 million of its own people for pretty much no good reason. So that to me is the important yeah. context. By the way, there's two, two, two things that are relevant here that I'll just point out. One is um, that the, the Holomodora, the, the, that great famine, it's part of the reason I was talking to James Brooke about this just yesterday. James Brooke was a uh, well, he was a New York Times correspondent for more than 20 years. He's been living in Ukraine for the past six years. He was also VOA Moscow bureau chief. And what he pointed out is that one of the things that has separated Ukraine from any, from the Kremlin and made people feel they don't want to be part of Russia was they, ha- they haven't forgotten or forgiven the Holomador. And they see, and they see the, they see the link between Putin and Stalin and the Kremlin and don't and they want to be their own country and that's and that is part of part of the equation. The other thing is as we're talking about yeah Americans would never want to see us having extensive trade relations with a country committing genocide. Well, except that <laughs> right now that's what's going on vis-a-vis China. Um so I I just point that out. I'm going to say one more thing and then I re- feel free to jump in here. There's a 2019 film, we're not doing film criticism here, but I like it a lot, called Mr. Jones, which tells the story of Gareth Jones, who is a Welsh journalist who did uncover the truth about the Holodomor, the famine created by Stalin, um, and uh, and with Durante covered up. Now, Durante is portrayed in that film, Peter Sarsgaard, who does a beautiful job. He also makes it that Durante was having a great time in Moscow because he was liked by the government. He had great parties. He had women, he had booze. I don't know that he was that. And I, as a, as a former foreign correspondent, I can tell you it's much more pleasant living experience when you're in a country, if the government likes you, than if the government doesn't like you, you get access and you have a good time. If the government doesn't like you, you may get thrown in jail. You may get thrown out. You may, you may not get all kinds of other things. I really, I, any any comments you have on this before I, before I move on, but I, but uh, but I wanted to establish this. Yeah, well, um, first, hi, hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, but I think these questions that Ashley and you are raising about motive are really interesting questions. Um, the the why of you know why does the Times keep getting it wrong? And so Ashley mentioned this kind of 
corporate commercial uh, motive that it's somehow um, might be better for the New York Times company as a as a capitalist business to shade the story in one direction or other. And then you mentioned the kind of very um, basic uh, wanting to be liked, uh, easier, get along, easier uh, motive of a foreign correspondent in a in a place that could be uncomfortable if you if you tell difficult truths. Um, I guess I would just add some other possible uh, motives. I think the commercial motive is an interesting one. It's it's not always just um, like the owner giving orders because as, as former reporters or as current reporters, we know like newspaper, newspaper reporters don't like being ordered by the owner to say something that they know is not true. That, that doesn't really, um, that doesn't work well in, in most newsrooms because people go into reporting because they, they like to think they're telling the truth at least. Um, but but you also want to work you want to have a lot of readers and so there's a there's a temptation i think especially in modern journalism to cater to your audience and those that could be an international audience so the times now translating its articles into chinese or into arabic or e- even in some cases into hebrew uh um um and and there's a audience of english speaking readers in in europe that may see things very differently from readers in in america um so so that temptation to grow the audience to to um and, and then there's also cultural um biases among the people who go into journalism they tend to be well educated urban liberals progressive polling shows they're they vote democratic overwhelmingly. They're they tend to be more affluent than the general population, um, not less religious. So, um, so all these m- motivational questions, I think, are are interesting. Um, sort of second order questions. Once you point out, oh, geez, they actually got it factually wrong. Well, I don't, and I think we just have to mention here the role of ideology. I don't know exactly what Durante's ideology was, but in, among intellectuals, not least intellectuals uh, educated at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, there was a, there, there there was the general impression that the Soviet Union was progressive. That the Soviet Union, you know, uh, I think the famous quote, I think it's Durante's quote, is, "Look, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs." And this is a revolution. And uh, and why what and why did we should just mention it? Why did Stalin um, uh, why did he foster uh, a famine in Ukraine? Well, I think the, the reason was that he was um, frustrated with the peasants who weren't going along with collectivization, didn't want to give up their land, didn't want to give it, didn't want to move to colhoses, didn't they were not doing what he wanted them to do. They were kind of rebellious. And he said, well, then let's kill some of them and let's starve them. And let's take the food away. This comes across, I think, in the, in, in the film, uh, Mr. Jones. So there's also, there's also that. Um, I don't know. You, did you want to? Did you want to add to that, Ashley? And then before I, I, I a few other, there's many other things I want to get to. Uh, no, I, I, I think that was. I think that's the right, the right read um, of Stalin, Stalin's motive there. And to Ira's question about motive and motivation for journalists, I think you're absolutely correct. 
most, the vast, vast majority of journalists are interested in the truth. They are looking to tell stories that are, you know, that resonate with real people because they, they're based in reality. But I think the Times has shown itself to be adept at finding the people that have the moral ambivalence to bend to the will when they need them to and to make the quid, quid pro quo. So if you look at Durante, if you look at Jason Blair um, more recently, uh, you know, Jason Blair, you could have told him as long as the rewards were right for him, you could have told him to report that the moon was made of cheese. He he would run the story and they would have put it on their front page. So I think it it does it differs person to person. And I also think there's a distinction between motivation of management, which is, I think, more or less financial and motivation of the newsroom, which can be more ideological um, and more principled for better or worse. I, I, I hadn't thought of this in years, so I, <laughs> but you, I think both of you are right. So for example, years ago, I wrote a piece on Coca-Cola and the origins of the, their formula, which did come out of South America and did come out of Cocaine, cocoa, the same, the same thing. And there was the original formula did have a narcotic impact. And I thought I did a great job because I got, you know, I, I explored the history of this thing. And um, evidently the people at Coca-Cola called up my editor and were furious. And he uh, laid me out for this piece. And I said, well, I didn't get anything wrong. This is real history, which is far as I know, very few people have explored. Some have. I got a little more on, on it. And he was not happy about it as well. I wrote a couple of columns you've recently written. The one, uh, um, the hostage taking at a synagogue in Texas the other day by a jihadist demanding that a terrorist be released from prison. A big story which didn't make the front page of the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, so... I hate to get pushed <laughs> into the role of defending the times, but, but, you know, well, you wrote I, about this. I you you weren't, you weren't particularly I don't, defensive. I don't, I don't know that I wrote about that. Maybe you're getting maybe mixed up with someone else, but, but, um, Oh, I thought I saw that in, in, in smarter times.com. I didn't, but the, you know, that happened on a Saturday. So the reality of newsrooms is a Sunday. This is like basic kind of technical stuff. Nobody's going to believe that if you believe like, oh, the Times really doesn't care about Jews or whatever. The basic fact is the top editors who plan the front page of the Sunday paper are at home with their families on Saturday. They're, they're not at work. There's a, there's a meeting late on Friday when that gets planned. And on Saturday, the first issue of the New York Times, the Bulldog, um, you could buy it in Times Square at like 7 p.m. on on Saturday. So the print deadline for that is like three or something. So so at that point, the decision like most Jews who were like later in the night were checking Twitter all the time for what was happening with this thing. Um, they didn't even know about it. Like nobody had been killed. It was a standoff, um, you know, it, with no one injured, a hostage situation. You, so the, they kind of saw the complaints about that. And it was on the front page like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They've been staying with it. 
They sent like a lot of reporters down there. They had an inter- one of the first interviews with the rabbi. Okay. All right. Listen, I stand corrected. I thought that I thought that was your cruise. It's good to be fair. And if you're being fair in this case, let me mention another column in smartertimes.com. I'm pretty sure it was yours. Where you you mentioned a piece, it was a column actually in the Sunday business section. Uh, by Jeff Summer that tells readers that a truly diversified stock portfolio is a multinational one containing shares from all major public stock markets, including those in China. And you point out that on the in the online version, there's a hyperlink to a previous column by Jeff Summers that discusses China in more detail, averring, I think the benefits of putting some of your money into Chinese stocks and bonds are more compelling than the reasons for staying away and explaining, I've come to accept that I'm a diehard globalist. Okay, that that one you're not so you're not so de- you're not defending. You're, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, there's a the the Biden administration and the Trump administration both say there's an ongoing genocide in in China, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum put out a report quite recently saying there were between one million and three million, probably closer to three million. Uh, uh, Muslims in 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 based in you know the Holocaust Museum called them uh, camps like like in confinement, um, and so you know the Times has been going after Israeli companies for selling stuff to Saudi Arabia like that's that's used to monitor dissidents or or beat up journalists. Uh, but here, um, the times is telling us we should invest in China, which basically means in companies that are owned or controlled by the government that's perpetrating this genocide and the, the PLA, the, the army that's, that's, that's keeping that communist government in power. So, you know, and and also they're saying the the Times is cheering on the the movement to divest from the settlements and 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 from from Israel. So it's like such a double standard that really gets me that that you know oh yeah go invest in genocidal China, but but you know Ben and Jerry's should 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 not sell its ice cream to Israel Israeli Jews who live in suburbs of Jerusalem. And the Times is just cheering that on. And it, it makes me angry as a as a Jewish reader of the Times. And even just forget religion, just like somebody who has principles that thinks that, you know, okay, if you're going to take an ethical investment role, it should be applied fairly and and in a principled way rather than um, then picking and choosing and and being biased about it. Ashley, let's go back to the 1930s for a minute, um, because you also have a chapter um, on the Times coverage of of the rise of Hitler, uh, of World War II, and and the Holocaust. Um, and just to give some notes, you'll tell the story. But you write that a not that an, essentially a Nazi collaborator serves as the Times bureau chief at the most sensitive moment in modern history. In 1922, Hitler was described by the Times as someone actuated by lofty, unselfish patriotism. In 1939, the New York Times reported that Poland had invaded Germany and that Hitler merely responded to the aggression. Tell this story. Yeah, the the New York Times, um, you know, this is sort of, to Iris' point, is that 
it's it's not just Israel. I think it's a it's a bigger problem. It's a Jewish problem um, that has to do with the Salzburgers, who were at some point German Jews who immigrated to America. Uh, in this case, the the editor that you mentioned, Cliff Guido Andaris, he's he's I would say you know this is at least on the on the proportions of Walter Duranty, you know Hitler, Stalin, same period, and nobody knows his name. It's like he kind of just like slipped through the radar in this whole discussion about journalistic malfeasance and all that kind of stuff. He was really cheerleading for the Germans, the Nazis. And this spanned everything from calling his bureau. It was not his his article, which is even more egregious. It wasn't just him. Um, but an, a reporter from his bureau called the Berlin Olympics of 1936 the greatest sporting event of all time in the headline. And the piece reflects the sentiment. You're not learning about uh, Nazi persecution of Jews. You're not learning about how the games were, quote unquote, sanitized. You're even in the descriptions of Berlin at the time of this beautiful city where everybody was so wel- welcoming and, you know, streets lined with flags. It doesn't actually say that those flags were swastikas or had swastikas on them. Um, that is a very typical piece of reporting for the Times where you're you're taking something that the rest of the world and a lot of journalists in America were just condemning and saying this is just full on propaganda. And they are actually running it the way German propaganda masters wanted it to be run. I mean, that was the whole point of those Olympics. And back to your earlier point, Cliff, about history repeating or at least rhyming in this case, what are we seeing next month? Or is that, yeah, next month, the Olympics mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. China, of course. And we, it will be very interesting to read those reports about uh, the Berlin, uh, the Beijing Olympics. If I remember this correctly from your book, when the when the when after Hitler declared war on the U.S., most of the journalists who were still in Germany uh, essentially got arrested and put into a, a hotel that wasn't uh, very well heated, or it was, it was sort of a a, a, yes. a prison, not the worst prison, but it was a prison. Um, for the rest remainder yep. of the war, some of the diplomats were also in, essentially incarcerated there. I think it was in Darius, however, they made an exception in his case and didn't do that to him. Uh, yeah. that, do I remember that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. The American uh, correspondents were rounded up. They were put under, under SS guard in a in a chalet in wherever it was. I forget the exact location. And he was the only one. Guido and Darius was the only one who was allowed to stay in his quite posh hotel in Berlin. And there's actually a memo from a Nazi official saying the quote is, is something like because of his proven friendliness to Germany. That's mm. why he was given this exemption. And again, this is, it's all egregious. I mean, the Guido and Dara stuff is just jaw dropping. You read one story after the other with this guy and, and you sort of can't believe it, but it also can distract from the question of motivation and not just on his part. Mm-hmm. Okay. He liked Nazis. He was a fascist. Fine. But on the New York Times's part, a quote unquote liberal newspaper of New York City owned by a German Jewish family with sort of leftist sympathies, why would they allow this to go on? It's not like they weren't reading the reports. In fact, they did know. And it was brought to their attention by a mid-level Jewish editor who um, was threatened by the management with a lawsuit, with a libel lawsuit, if he were to come forward Mm. with this information. And again, this was all about the New York Times 
being in the number one slot, getting the best access because the Nazis, they did indeed love Endaris and they would give him great access. And that's something we were talking about earlier is that journalists want access. And sometimes they, you know, they take that too far as well. And that, that cushy uh, scenario becomes, it becomes a Faustian pact. And that's exactly what it was for Endaris, though I think he was also ideologically motivated. But for the times, they wanted to continue to have that kind of access. And the rationale was, we can't lose our best positioned correspondent reporter in probably all of Europe at that moment. Um, it's not worth it. So they didn't. They kept them in. Listeners may wonder, and so maybe we should digress for a minute. Talk about the founding of the New York Times, the family, the two families uh, that are mo- most responsible and how they evolved over the years. Do that. Give a, yeah, give the, a quick the current the current incarnation of the Times, it, it was purchased by a German-Jewish immigrant uh, to the United States named Adolf Ox. And he sort of is the the patriarch of what is still today a dynasty, is a dynastic family that's controlled the newspaper for well over a century. And it's it's a very, it's a nuanced thing to understand who these people were and are. They're German Jews. Um, They came from a milieu of German Jewry that really saw quote unquote emancipation, which by which they meant like the being accepted into larger German society and being able to assimilate as the, the greatest goal, the greatest goal of their cultural lives. And they brought that with them as an ideology, as a guiding philosophy, and as a, as a, a reinterpretation of their religion to understand Judaism as a manner of worship, much like Christianity was for any other American in America at that time, not as a nationality or an ethnicity or a race that would differentiate them from the larger population. And I think that was something that was really internalized by the Ox Soulsberger uh, family. And I think it comes out in some of the decision-making that has been made at the Times for many years. Yeah, I mean, two points of history. One is that a, a great number of, of German Jews, um, even in the 1930s, um, took the view that they were essentially German. They were a tribe of Germany, and they really looked for acceptance within uh, the Nazi regime. Uh, they didn't get it, but they hoped they would get it. They were very they were patriotic Germans. They had fought disproportionately uh, bravely in World War One, even though they were accused by Hitler of being shirkers. That's the, 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 that's not the not the case if you look at the at the, at the data available in terms of uh, being wounded, being killed, volunteering, all that. It didn't work out. The other thing about the Sulzberger family we just just noticed. Um, oh, and by the way, they, they they didn't want to be seen as a race in Germany. But that's how Hitler saw them. They were, you're a race. It doesn't matter if you convert. It doesn't matter if you're patriotic. You're a Jew. It's your blood. It's your DNA. And for that reason, we will exterminate you. Um, and, you know, and we, we're at a time of the anniversary of the uh, the Wannsee Conference, which is when the 15 German senior officials got together in a suburb of Berlin, a little resort, had a nice breakfast and issued a death sentence for uh, all European Jews and planned how to industrialize the slaughter. Also, uh, the Salzburger family did convert and be uh, as a way to assimilate there. They haven't been Jews in, 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 in several generations. In the six years of the war, the New York Times, uh, you say, printed Holocaust-related stories 
on its front page exactly six times, which would be one one story per one million victims, I guess, if you wanted to parcel it out that way. Um, I don't know. Ira, do you want to add anything? I'm sure you've you've looked at this period of history and uh, and this relationship. And there's a lot we're going to get into the a larger. I want to chapter five of of of, of as book um, is is goes into this and it's, it's into some depth. Go ahead if you wanted to add to this. Yeah, I mean, I would just say the family, like it's complicated because uh, you know the so the current publisher uh, is not Jewish, but he's got cousins who work in the business who are Jewish, and so there's it's it's a big family with a lot of cousins. Some of them are still Jewish, uh, some of them are not. Um, just just like a lot of American Jewry, um, and the the. Judaism that they were was a kind of uh, classical reform Judaism, which before the Holocaust was also like not that into Zionism. Um, so, 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 um, so that's also kind of an interesting part of it. And they had family members uh, in Germany who they were they were trying to get out. Um, so, so you know that's also. Uh, part part of part of the part of the story right, right um it's and a sad part of the story um i want you to make sure you talk about the times today and in particular i think uh i have in mind the 1619 project um i think that was your last chapter but let's talk about it now woke history our founding ideals were false is the is the way you you, you title it i i have to say i found I found it distressing and shocking to see this be, uh, to see a, rep- you know, I, I see if I had gone to my editors and I was at the Times and said, you know what, I think American history has been written entirely incorrectly. This is my view. And the, and that the American experiment didn't start in 1776, but in 1619 when the first slaves were brought here and it's, and, and that's, and slavery and systemic racism is what history is about. My editor would have looked at me and said, well, I mean, is there a trend among historians and academics that believes this that you want to report on? Because you are not a historian, Cliff. You are a reporter. You don't get to just come up with a theory of history and put it in the New York Times. You've got to be, what are you, crazy? But essentially, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones did exactly that, won a Pulitzer for it, is a, now going to be a tenured professor, and her view of history is being embedded in schools around the United States. Take it from there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it leaves you speechless a little bit because it's so crazy. And I, another twist to all this is that not only did she go and create her own or maybe a borrowed um, reinterpretation of American history revision um, but a lot of it was just flat out wrong. And it wasn't wrong in the, oh, we made a silly little mistake here. It was wrong in the sense that their own fact checkers were telling them that this stuff was wrong in some cases before they went to press. Um, in one particularly egregious case, the, Nicole Hannah-Jones herself in her essay in, in that issue was a full issue of the Sunday Times magazine devoted to this project, the 1619 project. In her essay, she claims that the American Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery. And the 
fact checker that they turned to for this was a is a professor of African American studies at Northwestern, who is an African American woman, by the way, who uh, just said, "No, that's just not right. It's just not the case. Sorry, you can't say that." And she wrote in Politico that they published it anyways, and that's that word anyway was the alarm bell to me, saying, "Why would they do that?" You know the kind of risk that you're taking, a reputational risk, a hugely embarrassing editor's note risk, um, and on and on and on. And this is actually what came to pass. Historians from across the board, we're talking dozens of institutions coming out to say, this is wrong. It needs to be retracted. It needs to be just take it off the table. And these are not people who, these are not the types of people, they're academics. They're not the kind of people who want to come out and tell a newspaper what not to print. That's not what they like to do in life. And they did it. And again, back to this question of why. Why would the Times, A, to Cliff's point, let a reporter make up a new history theory in their pages that is not journalism? She's not covering something. She's creating something. And B, why would they allow it to be so riddled with serious error, really substantive error? And to me, the answer is because, again, there's a bifurcation here. On the one hand, you have Nicole Hannah-Jones and you have the New York Times newsroom, which is becoming increasingly woke and millennial with uh, hard left attitudes. And they want to see that stuff. And Ira kind of made that point earlier about you you kind of get to this point where you know what your audience wants and you're going to deliver. Um, and I think that is not in the you know, for all journalists, but I think these journalists do believe this to be true. I think as we saw with the Tom Cotton flap, uh, where Tom Cotton published an op-ed in the New York Times and uh, calling for troops to be brought in to quell the, the riots over the, that summer of 2020, 300 New York Times staffers got up and left. They walked out of the newsroom because of an op-ed Tom Cotton wrote. They've never done the same thing with regard to um, the New York Times publishing an op-ed by a Taliban leader, a terror leader, a few months prior to Tom Cotton. The attitudes of the newsroom are changing. And on the other side of that bifurcation, you've got the management. Why would the management do this? Why would they put the money into it? Why would they invest their credibility into this? And that is because they know who their audience is. They know their audience are consists of younger people who they're looking to to subscribe to the times for the next 10, 20, 30 years, and they got to deliver the goods. And we see that when the New York Times launched its Truth Matters campaign, it's their big marketing campaign that they're running right now. Um, the 1619 project was explicitly a centerpiece of that marketing of that ad campaign. It was a, their biggest, best, greatest case study for this new marketing thing, which is to say the New York Times is synonymous with truth. And that in itself is a breathtaking claim for a newspaper to make. And it's almost so, so foolhardy to think that anyone could actually say those words aloud, let alone to believe them. And Ira, you, uh, you, you mentioned in one of your columns, I guess they got this right also, um, there was a, 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 a an op-ed in the Times by Zhao Bo, a 17-year veteran of the People's Liberation Army, essentially plumping for a genocidal regime. That was just okay. That was okay, but Tom Cotton, a sitting senator, wasn't. Um, and and maybe tell people what happened in response to Tom Cotton's op-ed, because uh, there were personnel changes as a result. Of yeah, well, the editor of the New York Times editorial page, James Bennett, who had been talked about as a possible uh, executive editor, the top 
news editor job of the paper, like a serious figure, a former Jerusalem bureau chief, former editor of the Atlantic magazine, um, former White House correspondent. Um, he was forced out. He, he, he had to resign. Um, and they brought in a new editorial page editor a- after that um, after that cotton uh, article. And and then not only that, um, the editor who had dealt with the particular line editing of it, a guy called Adam Rubenstein, he left. And then um, Barry Weiss, another editor on the Times editorial uh, page who uh, is a anti-Trump liberal, as far as I can tell, who's, you know, deviates from the like Stalinist line on, you know, a few issues like Israel, uh, you know, she left um, because it was so the climate there was just so intolerable um, to, you know, so. um, So and there's been a lot of turnover. There's a lot of turnover at the times. um, Good people leaving um, for other places because exactly that kind of Barry Weiss talked about the young wokes and and how um, like people are there's just ostracism uh, within the paper like people like wouldn't talk like petty stuff you know like there's a slack channel which is an internal messaging system uh, and and you know people were kind of complaining to their editors about about stuff and and just so much energy consumed with internal politics that could be spent on getting scoops or uh, doing a better job of covering the news. I'm going to mention uh, one instance that I don't think is in your book, uh, Ashley. I was in Iran in 1979, not for the New York Times, but the Times essentially got that wrong too. Uh, I, a New York Times editorial reassured readers that, quote, moderate progressive individuals, close quote, were advising Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the leader of the revolution who became the supreme leader, the dictator. And the Times predicted that the Ayatollah would provide, quote, a desperately needed model of humane governance for a third world country. Boy, that's 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 pretty off. That's pretty off, off base. I, I and I'll just remember this. I a lot of my colleagues over there were sort of taken in by the revolution, and I worked on a documentary film with an Iranian who was totally for revolution, and it made made. And I, I although I had a fascinating time there, it, it got uncomfortable between us because I didn't see it that way. But the Times might have done better. Uh, I'll, I'll let you comment on that if you want, and then I'll, I want to move on to other subjects. But if you, any, anyhow, if you want to say something about that, please do. I mean, it, to me, it, it does. It, there's a sort of media-wide sense, at least I have that sense, that there's just this exception made for Iran, and they don't. We don't extend this kind of graciousness to other dictatorships. The media doesn't. Um, but with Iran, it's always this enormous benefit of the doubt. Um, mm. And I, and I think that's, you know, 
I think the, the media had taken that kind of attitude towards some of the um, acknowledged bad guys of the day, you know, towards Russia, Syria. We'd seen these patterns of just endless forgiveness for these countries until it became politically inexpedient to maintain that posture. And then they flipped. And I think with Iran, it's my guess is the same thing, is that um, the the ideology and the political parties that influence the media um, have an interest in keeping uh, sort of a an open an open-armed attitude, open-armed posture toward Iran. I think there's just a political quotient there. For a long while, Ira, you'll say what you want, but I want you to mention this this part. I think that the Times was reporting rather badly on Iran uh, at the same time that they were sponsoring trips by Times correspondents to Iran for the sake of tourism, which uh, there's a conflict of interest in that if one thinks about it. It, it was amazing. That's about... Exactly what I was going to mention. They were charging a hundred thousand dollars to for a round the world trip on a private jet with uh, New York Times columnists and publishers, uh, basically acting as tour guides for um, for for rich tourists who. And, and the language on the website promoting these tours about the wonders of these Iranian cities and the markets and, you know, one, one was tempted to call up and say like, oh, you know, are Israelis allowed to go on this trip or, or uh, are, are gays allowed to go or Jews allowed to go? I mean, th- these are, these are, these are not, I mean, these are not, it's not like a trip to Broadway accompanied by the Times drama critic. It, they, these are <laughs> countries where people are getting executed left and right. I mean, th- these are countries setting off terrorist bombs in Israeli uh, restaurants and cafes and and bombing buses full of uh, is American Jewish college students. This is it's not it's not, you know, spend your $10,000 for a seven-day tour and enjoy the gardens of Isfahan. And persecuting the Baha'i and hanging homosexuals from cranes and oh, we can go on. All right, there's one more story I want to make sure we get into and then I'm going to widen the aperture a little bit on this whole thing. Uh, your chapter three, the making, the making of Messiah, and then there was Fidel Castro, the Herbert Matthews story. This is one that I did know a little bit when I was at the Times. I think the, the joke was... Uh, a picture of Fidel saying, I got my job through the New York Times, if I, re- if I remember. Um, talk about, for people who don't know or people who do, who Herbert Matthews was and, and what happened there. Herbert Matthews was another one of these um, a bit larger than life uh, correspondences of the New York correspondents of the New York Times who had sort of palled around with Hemingway, uh, I think in Spain and was in Abyssinia, Ethiopia to cover uh, the war there. And he, he just had this very romantic flair and this really romantic outlook about the a sort of a Hemingwayan uh, view of journalism and what it was to be a journalist. And he could get carried away with himself. In this case, he went to find this sort of down and out rebel uh, in the late 1950s. I think it was around 57 uh, called Fidel Castro, who was sort of hiding out in, in the mountains of Cuba and was not really very relevant anymore. He had he had not succeeded in sort of getting to this critical mass where he had enough 
weapons and men and resources to really wage any kind of meaningful rebellion against the Batista regime. And he was just kind of like uh, holed up, essentially. Matthews gets there and, and discovers Fidel Castro and puts it on the front page and starts writing this series, not just one story. I mean, in one story, it's kind of like comes and goes. It was really a drumbeat of reporting about Castro, not as a rebel. I mean, you could say, okay, there's some story there to cover. He reported on Castro as a democratic messiah, as this savior of Cuba. And it was in these ridiculous terms. And again, underlying the democratic nature of Castro's project, which obviously did not turn out to be accurate. Um, And it got so bad that the the Senate actually, con- I think it was, uh, I'm guessing, um, Foreign Affairs Committee actually had held hearings into the New York Times' coverage of Castro because it was it was so damaging. And in the background, the New York Times was sort of getting in the way of um, establishing proper once the re- once the revolution actually did take place. Um, the New York Times was kind of bungling this attempt to have proper ties established between the State Department and the new regime. But I think to me, the the real cherry on the top of all this is that in Castro's first visit to the United States, to New York, he went to thank the publisher of the New York Times for the incredible service the newspaper had done him. And this was something that was echoed by Che Guevara, who said that um, the the Times did more than any of the soldiers on the battlefield for the cause. And that's because they made him a a cause celebre. They made him a celebrity. They made him relevant on the world stage. We should note here that you had some difficulty getting this book published. And after it was published, getting it reviewed, being asked on programs uh, like this one to talk about it, maybe you should just go over that a little bit because I, I think it's, well, I'm not sure if you had done this on the Washington Post, would it be the same? But certainly the New York Times, it was a challenge, because, I guess because people in journalism don't like to criticize the New York Times. Yeah, that is um, in part true. They they don't, they definitely don't want to have that conversation about the Times. They know, I, I mean, as you know, Cliff, I mean, as a journalist, that that is it. That is Mecca. That's where you want to go. And to get there is a seriously big deal for journalists. I think people who are not in and around media don't fully recognize that what that means within journalism and to reporters. Um, so I definitely think that is a big piece of it. But then I think on the publishing side, I mean, it's just the simplest question. What is the most powerful book marketing tool in the entire world? It's the New York Times bestseller list. That's why everybody wants to say those words because it really works. And no book agent, no editor, publisher, or imprint wants to put that relationship at risk because the New York Times bestseller list is not an objective measure that is just somehow like a blockchain filled out by some data that's fed to it. It is actually considered an editorial property by the New York Times, meaning they choose what goes on the list. They've actually argued this in court and proved that was the case that that they how they argued a certain case about the bestseller list, which is that they have control over what goes on and off, and it's a subjective as much of as an objective measure. So no one really wants to risk all that for a single book that's just going to piss people off and piss the wrong people off. Um, but that's really changing, and I think that's people are waking up to this to a different kind of conversation about media to being a little bit more 
skeptical on the one hand and open-minded on the other hand. And that's a really positive development. And I want to be fair here, Ira. I, I mean, I, listen, when I, the day I got a, offered a job at the New York Times and I was there again as an editor, as a reporter in New York, as a reporter in Washington, as a foreign correspondent. I mean, I was just so proud and the idea to say, this is Cliff May from the New York Times on a phone call was just a a rush. And there are still some great reporters there, though I tend to think that a lot of them are reporters who have been there a long time and are getting close to buyouts or retirements. I am not at all sure that that the young reporters going in there um, certainly don't have the view of journalism I had when I graduated from Columbia Journalism School that I'm here to seek out the truth where and wherever that leads me, I will go. And if I have to uh, have people who I like dislike me because I'm telling the truth, so be it. That's my job. And if people I don't like end up getting fair and good coverage because that's the truth, that'll, that's, no, that's just no longer it. Anyhow, I mean, you, you look, Ira, you read the Times a lot more, more, more carefully than I do. What's the balance between propaganda and actual good reporting? Well, what I like to say is, um, you know, it's like Pravda, you, you could, or Izvestia, you, you could tell what's going on. You just have to adjust for the ideological bias. So... That, but I got to say, that's a tough adjustment. I went, I also, I did went to the Russian Institute of Columbia. We had whole courses on how to read the Soviet press between the lines. Unless you were, the casual reader could not read Pravda and Izvestia and understand what's going on. The sophisticated reader could because he'd say, oh my goodness, where's Trotsky in this picture? He ain't there. Oh, what does that mean? Is he dead? Is he in Mexico? What happened? You, anyhow, it's yes, you're a sophisticated reader. I actually is. I am. We've been trained in this stuff, but the average person cannot figure out what the truth is um, through that kind of uh, does not have the, the background to do that. Yeah. Well, I say if you can afford it, you know, read more than one <laughs> newspaper. So, um, even in the historical examples you gave, like Cuba, you know, so at the time the New York Sun existed and Jose Marti was writing for the New York Sun. Um, and, and, you know, it would be clear if you were a reader of the New York Sun what was happening in, in Cuba. Uh, um, so um, it's, you know, it, it, even now, like I get the New York Times home delivered uh, seven days a week and I get the Wall Street Journal uh, in print on the days that it published. And it's great because, um, you know, I can sit around the breakfast table with my kids and point to the same story and you can see two entirely opposite uh, views of it. You know, And one is tempted to say, well, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Not always. Uh, uh, you, your, uh, your, your, your subtitle on the book, Ashley, is uh, how these how this misreporting distortions and, and fabrications radically alter history. Maybe explain for a second what you mean by radically alter history. I mean that the, you know, the, the standard that I tried to adhere to for the book of what went in and what did not get into it was that it had to be, have historical impact. So when Castro is actually able to stage a revolution in Cuba because the New York Times reporting enabled him to have weapons, money, and guns channeled to him because he was all overnight a star. That changed the course of history. 
I mean, that was historically significant. The same thing with Judy Miller and weapons of mass destruction. The the New York Times of all newspapers is corroborating Bush administration claims about WMDs in Iraq. And that actually contributed to a different course of history than what might have taken place. And I think the same thing we see with, um, you know, Walter Durante and and, um, the Ukraine famine, which enabled the United States to recognize the USSRs. And that was that recognition came, I think, about a year after Durante was denying the famine. So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, no. I'm going to quibble with you just on one point. Sure. The point of personal privilege. I know I know yeah. Judy Miller a long time. My impression is not that she was she was not being she most intelligence agencies, yeah. the Americans, Israelis, Europeans believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He gave he intended to give that impression. I think we can see strategic value in him doing that. Um, I, I think she was. She she was reporting what she believed. I don't think she was misrepresenting. I don't think she was anything duplicitous about about what Judy was up to. I I just throw no, that I, out. I, to don't, you. I actually don't either. Um, I, okay. I think she was she was got it wrong. But the the you know the the Times uh, the Times is reporting around WMD and also the fracas of of Judy um, being thrown in jail. <laughs> after that and the, yeah, the, yeah. you know a, a lot of this is all tied together because m the way that i read it was that the times had come out with this sort of rah-rah attitude that was howell reigns kind of leading leading the charge to get pillagers and to become a national newspaper and that m meant not being seen as this like squishy left-wing new york thing but as this you know bold uh strong-jawed kind of newspaper and they were going to do whatever it takes and i think there was a lot of space for the New York Times to have been much more skeptical and much more um, circumspect in the way they reported on WMDs, and especially where get to this point where you know Judy Miller sees someone pointing at the ground saying this is where the weapons were buried, and she not being able to interview that person, but just kind of taking it on good faith that that was in. A, a reliable source. And the New York Times saying, yeah, we also think that's reliable, where I'm not sure that that would necessarily pass the smell test in a different circumstance. So I, I do think this was about more than Judy Miller. And that's that's what that chapter also touches on. The last subject I want to make sure we touch on, or I want to expand into for a moment. Um, it's not just the New York Times that has changed over recent years. Journalism has changed in in, in ways that I think are are not healthy. Again, much more partisan, much more openly propagandistic. No shame of it. MSNBC, um, Walt. You know, from what I, I find it impossible to watch. And I used to go on MSNBC. CNN has become very propagandistic. There was a time when I was I did a weekly debate because I wanted both sides on CNN. I had great fun doing it. I don't think that's probably possible anymore. Um, now, again, there are still some Fox. I think one can say that the, the primetime lineup is all opinions uh, all the time. I don't I, I think Brett Baer's show is very is good, straight news in the old fashioned sense. I myself, I but journalism in general is in a bad shape, isn't it, Ira? Well, you know, I think we have more competition and more choice than we ever had. And um I think sometimes I'd rather have someone admit that they're have an opinion or be upfront that they have an opinion than 
pretend to be objective when in fact, you know, they really have an opinion. So, um, so, you know, the, the internet has really changed some things for the worse, but some things for the better. I mean, if you want to know, if you want to, I remember I used to get the Jerusalem Post National Weekly Edition, and it was mailed to me. Uh, and so I would get the news from the Jerusalem Post like two weeks late. Uh, and it was daily articles from the Jerusalem Post that were kind of put into a weekly tabloid-shaped magazine. And now you can go online. There's an English edition of Haaretz. There's, um, you can read the Jerusalem Post every day. Um, we've got all these American Jewish newspapers, the Algeminer, uh, the Forward, the Jewish Press. Um, and and then people are tweeting stuff too. The reporters for these places are, are, are tweeting. And now you could say, are Americans more or less informed than they used to be when they had to wait two weeks and the editors had time to check and get it right? Well, um, you know, I think the the it's easy to blame the press, but you know, there's other factors, right? There's the education system. Um, there's 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 the decline of religion. There, you know, there's huge cultural factors. So try to try to pin this all on the press as make the press the scapegoat, probably overstating it a, a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, even getting these newspapers, like the, the, you know, you, if I used to grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, we used to get the Worcester Telegram and Gazette because they had a printing plant in town. Uh, now you could you can go online and get, and get any newspaper in America. Well, I'll just I'll make just a couple points and then I'll let Ashley have a, the last word. Uh, yes, but the, the 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 when I got into went into journalism like forty five years ago, there were newspapers in Worcester. There were newspapers in every town, and you could go there and get a job and do good reporting on the school board and the mayor and the, and. And you'd make a living and, it, and you could have a good life and maybe you'd rise up to the national paper, maybe you wouldn't. Most of those papers are gone now. I worked the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. I worked at after 150 years. It folded because there's no business model any for small newspapers anymore. So in a lot of these towns like Worcester, my, maybe it's different there. Nobody's covering the mayor. Nobody's covering the city council. Nobody's covering the school board. Also, I'm old school. And when I was at the Times and I had editors who absolutely believed you have to separate news from analysis, which is different from opinion, which is different. And Cliff, if you're a reporter, you're not in the opinion business until unless you're on the op-ed page or the editorial page. And I took pride in the fact that nobody knew my political opinions. People guessed at them, but nobody knew. And the people I reported on didn't know. And people on both sides of issues would say, no, you you got my quotes right and you, and you presented my 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 point of view, and I was proud of that, and let the and let the reader decide. Um, but I'm anyhow. I, I I I'm glad you're optimistic. I think I'm pessimistic about the future of journalism because I mean maybe it's going back to the way it, oh it it wasn't originally when newspapers and and media outlets were all broadsheets for one political view, and you either took took that and ran with it, or maybe you you tried to explore more. Ashley, I'm going to give you the last word since we're about out of time. I think we're we're 
in a place where both views are are equally justified. And I think the pessimism, you know, Cliff, the point you're making about a town had a newspaper, a city had its two or three or four newspapers. The newspapers were like utilities. They were the that was what there was, and you bought it. And what that did was it guaranteed a sustainability and a livelihood for journalists, a sustainability for the newspaper. And that meant that they could carry a line of independence without having to be terrified about their financial futures, both on a journalistic, on the level of the individual and the news organization as well. Um, and that's why you could have people who used to have, who had your approach to journalism, a, a friend of mine who was a clerk at the Times, um, she told me about an editor there who never, he refused to vote. He never voted ever at the New York Times. And it, because, it was because he felt that that might potentially taint his job as a journalist, his his sense of what his obligations are. Object, objectivity, disinterest, neutrality, exactly. fairness, all those things. Yeah. All those things are now, uh, they're not totally gone, but they're looked at, I think, as quaint. And because there is such fierce competition for a tiny pie, um, it's been carved up. The, the utility model of news is gone and everyone is now in this state of fierce competition and what part of that is also um, really increasing concentration corporate concentration you have a few a few i would say less than 10 probably five or six huge companies that own most of the media together and they're competing with one another and these people are also representing stock holders. They're representing, they have a fiduciary responsibility to keep the share price high. And that actually does trickle down to the level of news. And I think that's what we're seeing. CNN is just preaching to the base because the base is bringing home the bacon for them and for Fox and for everybody is playing the same game. But, and I think I was right in pointing to the internet here because we do have sub Substack. We do have serious reporters and journalists running their own Substacks. I think the next evolution is that you might have three or four local reporters in a small town uh, coming together and say, you know what, Let, rather than sort of fragment our efforts, let's come together and do the local news for our town together. And to, we might just be able to scrape together enough to get by and we're doing the stuff we love. I think that's where that is all going. And I think as well, nonprofit journalism, uh, journalism run by nonprofit newsrooms is another model that is emerging. That's another great sign because that does serve a great, a very important purpose. And it usually does it in a good way. So I think there is a lot of cause for optimism. We have options now. We are able to discuss the news. And what that means is there's also a watchdog for the news or media. And I think that's another really positive effect. Ashley Rinsberg's book is The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. Very much worth buying, very much worth reading. Ira Stoll's columns uh, in the Algaminer and smartertimes.com also very much worth keeping up on. Thank you both for being with us. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great and <laughs> very interesting conversation for me on a subject that, uh, that I care a lot about. And thanks to all of you for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.